0: I think the buy online, pick up in store is something that people missed for quite some time, where we were so used to for a couple of years, buying online, getting it shipped next day, but then people realize like friction there. It's like if something, if you don't like something and you want to return it, then you have to deal with that whole mess. And then waiting for product to get fulfilled sometimes can be like a nerve wracking, frustrating experience.
1: Welcome to the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, a podcast by Noibu where we explore the elite strategies and cutting edge insights with our expert guests. Get ready to propel your e-commerce business to the next level with your hosts, Kalen and Philip. Welcome everyone to the e-commerce toolbox, experts perspective. Joining us today, we have a entrepreneur with over nine different businesses that he started from retail to casual fine dining, to fine dining to the business that we'll likely be spending a lot of our time talking about today, which is a very successful e-commerce business called Hobbiesville. Joining us today is Edmund Georges. Welcome, Edmund. Thank you for having me. And just to introduce Edmund to everyone, obviously Edmund's an entrepreneur, but at Hobbiesville, he's currently the president and CTO, so overseeing all the technical decisions, which is why I think our first question today is about e-commerce platforms. So, obviously, you're operating in a competitive environment like e-commerce is as a whole. And just for context for the, for the listeners, Hobbiesville is a place where you can buy Pokemon cards, Yu Gi Oh cards, and a lot of different collectibles. So, obviously, they're not manufacturing their own products. So, when it comes to making technology decisions in such a competitive landscape, could you maybe talk to us about what some of those decisions
0: were and why you made them? I think different considerations happen at different points in the kind of the revenue size of a business. Like when you first kind of get started, you're looking for like the easiest option to just get going and start selling, which, you know, we started on Shopify. My co-founder spent about six years working in the Shopify capital team. And so, you know, us being in Ottawa, Shopify was obviously the go-to option, easiest to kind of get going and easiest to kind of scale with. So that's kind of how we started. We really went with Shopify. And then the part that I think a lot of people miss is as you grow, You start to add in different functionality, whether it's like your search and filter, whether it's your loyalty program, whether it's even like, you know, bulk discounting. Shopify is kind of like the skeleton. And then you add on all these add ons to be able to customize it to whatever you need in your industry. It makes sense. And as we look
1: at your journey, you guys started during COVID. You were a pure play e-commerce. Obviously, brick and mortar wasn't super hot during the COVID, especially during the lockdowns here in Canada. Could you maybe talk to us a bit about your journey where you're more of a pure play retailer that's now started to open up brick and mortar stores. So maybe walk us through some of those thought processes and kind of what your plan and journey has been there. So
0: we kind of got our start uh, early summer 2020 when uh, nobody really knew kind of what was happening in the world. Everyone was kind of trapped at home. And so Logan kicked off the Shopify store and wanted to see if he could you know, sell some products that he found in an old basement, his parents' basement. And so we launched online, essentially proved the concept, and we were able to identify pretty early on that there was about to be a surge in that market, given that like no one is going back to the office anytime soon. So step one was get online, start selling. And then when we first started chatting about it, one of the first questions I asked him was, oh, what are the limiting factors right now that are preventing you from really you know going big? And one of the questions was around In our industry, having a brick-and-mortar location is critical for you to be able to sell certain products. So they want to deter basement resellers. They want to deter scalpers. So what they do is they say, in order for you to sell, let's say, hockey products, you need to be open for X amount of days a week, X amount of hours a week. You have to meet certain conditions in terms of how the store looks and all that. So that's kind of what pushed us to open that first location. And then, funny enough, we opened that first location in Kempville. And then lasted there about, I think it was like 10 months or 11 months, outgrew the infrastructure there. It's not that we outgrew the store, we actually outgrew the infrastructure. So, Canada Post couldn't pick up our orders anymore. They couldn't take our orders. We're just like shipping out too much and they just didn't have the manpower to get it all out. So, during like the holiday period, we'd like show up multiple times a day with like a truck full of orders and they'd, What are you guys shipping out? Like, what is all this stuff? And so, we got to Ottawa and then now we're kind of, hitting that limit a little bit with our Ottawa infrastructure in terms of fulfillment too. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that with certain
1: suppliers, that to your point, they don't want basement scalpers. So they want to make sure that there's a certain level of infrastructure at the brand level to be able to supply you with the products. How have you seen that impact your digital business? Um, Like for example, I know that you guys have recently just opened up a store in Toronto as well. Like, are you seeing that signage, drive further digital traffic and purchases as well? Or what's the impact on that?
0: So our goal is to strive to be almost always 90% online, 10% in store. And then as we scale revenue, obviously, like future locations would continue to be an important part of that. And so I think what's happened post-COVID is people have kind of rediscovered in-person interactions, in-person shopping. A big part of our business is like the community aspect, like we have daily tournaments in Toronto right now that we're building up. We've got tournaments in Ottawa, and I think the buy online, pick up in store is something that people missed for quite some time. Where we were so used to for a couple of years, buying online, getting it shipped next day, but then people realize like friction there. It's like if something, if you don't like something and you want to return it, then you have to deal with that whole mess, and then waiting for product to get fulfilled sometimes can be like a nerve wracking frustrating experience like you want it tomorrow but then now you need to wait like two days for it to get fulfilled and then two to three days for it to ship and then the package gets lost in the mail so people are kind of like the hybrid approach where they can like shop online see what they like and then either order online pick it up in store or they can be like you know what i'm going to be in that area on the weekend let me pop by the store and go pick it up and see what else they've got So I think that's what's kind of driven people back to that side. And then for us, another big thing is we buy products back from customers, like single cards. If a customer wants to send us cards, it's difficult for them to like want to ship them to us, for us to evaluate them. And then if we don't agree on a price, then shipping them back, like there's some friction in that process. So us opening in Toronto just kind of unlocked that world where we've got millions of people that can actually now physically interact with the store in like a low commitment kind of way. So that's been a huge kind of growth for us. And then the next physical move for us is I'm starting to shop around for opening a store in New York. Cool. That's really good. And obviously, we chatted from a high level about
1: the growth. So between COVID and now, you guys have hit over eight figures in revenue. So you guys are growing really quickly. Talk to me a bit about, did you guys raise a lot of money to do that? Have you done it kind of bootstrap, profitable? I chatted in our first episode with John Maris from Solo Brands and Solo Stove, and they were profitable for a very long time um, before raising uh, capital and eventually IPOing. So maybe talk to me a bit about how you and your co founder Logan are looking at that and how you look at gross and capital efficiency and all those things.
0: From day one, kind of part of our ethics was to scale responsibly. I think that we saw the end of an era where people, all people cared about was like top line revenue. And it was like, As long as we're growing and we're growing fast, then we will continue to be able to get money to fuel burn and to inevitably hit this future tier of profitability. And so we never really followed that philosophy. We've been pretty much bootstrapped since day one. We've never completed a fundraise. I would say like leverage debt strategically. I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of like what debt really means. And once you start to get into a more mature kind of financial model where you can work that into your margins, then you can leverage other people's money to essentially grow at a profit. And so we've never had to fuel burn. We've always been profitable since day one and continue to do so. Once we kind of cleared that first 24 month cliff, that 24 month cliff really is most traditional lenders want to see about 24 months of financial runway to be comfortable with lending money out, especially in larger amounts. And once we cleared that, you know, we leveraged a number of different tools along the way to kind of get to that point uh, from like traditional banks to uh BDC to alternate lenders like the you know the Wayflyers and the Clearco's and the Shopify Capitals of the world. So yeah, we've dabbled through all of that and kind of helped leverage that to grow. And when I look at our we're just closing in year three, and I believe we're currently sitting at 62% up year over year, still bootstrapped.
1: Those are really impressive numbers given that, like a lot. And I think if you guys, to your point, would have raised a bunch of money and like pulled forward demand, you'd probably be sitting in a year over year flat or decrease in demand. Cause as we know, macro is not exactly where it was 12 months ago, especially not on kind of luxury items or the space that you're sitting in right now. That's really good advice. I also want to really kind of double click into the omni channel technology aspect of it as well. So. Obviously, you have a lot of moving parts, right? You have your online store, but then you have someone who comes in, they have a card that needs to then get priced, put into the inventory. Like, how have you been able to architect all of that? And you don't have to name vendors or anything, just like strategically. Like, have right. you been able to leverage your background in technology and operating to really right. like architect that so it is seamless? I know way back in like 2017, when before we had landed on the idea of what Noigu is today, We had interviewed a lot of merchants that had like one or two brick and mortar locations, and a big issue they were having was like inventory syncing, especially with returns. Or they would sell something on the store, and then like they wouldn't take it off the shelf, and someone would sell it in store. Like, how have you managed that, especially with a lot of like single item SKUs, like a unique card?
0: Yeah, so I think currently our catalog is sitting around sixty thousand SKUs, roughly. Which is, as you can imagine, is like quite a bit to manage. We do have our own dedicated fulfillment warehouse that we run and operate. And I guess there's a couple of things to unpack there. On the on the omnichannel front, actually before the omnichannel front, I think it's important to, as a business, start to build a bit of an ecosystem around your business and give people an opportunity to be able to interact with your business in different assets and different avenues. One of the interesting decisions that we made early on, not even fully knowing, was we deployed a mobile sales channel i think month 4 or month 3 after launching which is out of all the priorities to have is definitely typically a questionable one because it's only really worth having a mobile app if you have a higher return customer rate and so when i look at kind of the the history of hobbiesville we've always strived and hit around a 45% customer return rate which is super healthy because it means that we're reactivating customers that are pre-existing and then we're also tapping into new markets and new audiences so that 45% number is one that we kind of pegged to the board early on and strive for in terms of omni-channel omni-channel in terms of sales channels kind of shooting outwards we're currently we just launched on ebay so we're starting to leverage ebay as a partner they reached out to us and wanted to kind of set up a long-term partnership and start to work on some cool things I know you mentioned before that the core of our business is stuff where we're selling other IP or other vendors, but part of our next 12 to 36 months is we're going to be putting out a lot of licensed collaborations with a lot of bigger brands, let's say like Hobbiesville, Hobbiesville collaborations, and then also working with like bigger designers and the industry. So a lot of that is kind of stay tuned to come.
1: That's a great answer. And that was actually that kind of dovetails my next question. Like, What do you see happening over the next kind of 36 months? Like, what is that kind of shorter term strategic vision? And I'm going to hop into kind of the long term, but what is that kind of shorter term strategic vision? You
0: mentioned some of the things, and you don't have to get too much in the details on it, but I'm curious. In terms of kind of our goals, I would say continuing to build out more interactive experiences for customers, giving them reasons to come to the website other than to just buy stuff. I think that there's a misconception with a lot of brands where they struggle and they try to go hire someone to try and cheat, you know, creating content or leveraging chat GPT to write blogs and all that. People are really looking for shortcuts in that space. And we want to build an ecosystem of content around the different products that we sell and kind of give back to that community. So I think that's kind of a big avenue for us. The US expansion, like deeper US expansion, US accounts for about 30 to 35% of our sales today. And so that's a big market that we want to grow into and, you know, bring our version of hobbies and collectibles into that market. That's another big one. And then I would say technology enablement, continuing to lean deeper into our mobile app. We're still one of the only retailers globally that's leveraging a retail app to deliver sales and content to our customers. So really creating kind of customized experiences there. That's another big one, I would say. Yeah, that kind of covers it for the next 36 months I would say. And what's the like 10 year plus vision
1: that everyone kind of has at the at the
0: end of the dartboard that we're all striving to hit? I think that kind of the reason that we got into this in the first place was we saw an industry that was in dire need of a bit of a refresh technologically. A lot of the traditional local game stores were stores that got sprung up by passionate enthusiasts of the products that we sell that just wanted to be able to do it for a living. And then what kind of helped us grow is we identified that there was an opportunity to bring a lot of the typical direct-to-consumer playbook stuff and bring it into this industry. And so we acquired market share strictly off the fact that we had a more modern D2C e-com experience. We were one of the first to launch a mobile app and kind of continuing to lean into that. I think that there's been a lot of cool collaborations and creations that have happened in the fashion space. When it comes to collaborating with designers and in anime type brands, so we're going to be bringing a lot of that. I would say some of what's pretty common in the fashion world. I think we're going to try to bridge that gap into the ecom slash anime world. Kind of stay tuned on that.
1: In one of the like some of the last few podcasts that I've uh, recorded, we talked a lot about the importance of fulfillment packaging for D2C brands specifically, because to your point, well, actually, now it's a bit different for you guys because you have brick and mortar. But prior to that, really, the customer journey is effectively heavily dictated through fulfillment, packing, getting the item there, making sure Canada Post or whatever post service doesn't lose it. My question's around the fulfillment. Like, what have you guys done on the fulfillment side to, A, ensure that you're not eroding your margins, but more importantly, to make sure that your customers aren't getting a, like a fragmented
0: experience? I think it's definitely been a challenge, just like it has for any brand. I think the tone was set early on by the unsustainable service level that, let's say, Amazon originally delivered on. And that kind of programmed customers to be very demanding in a sense, where they really wanted it available next day for free, free returns, you know, just that top tier. And so since that initial kind of big COVID Amazon push, I think that even Amazon has scaled back that service level. And it's a lot more common now to see, you know, one to two days fulfillment time and one to three days, even on prime. So early on, really, we put in a lot of emphasis on trying to be as responsive as possible when it came to answering customer requests, being more proactive with automated flows that let the customer know like, where it's at within its journey. One of the challenges in our industry is we do a lot of pre-orders. So sometimes a pre-order might launch 90 days in advance and a customer might have a retail product that's currently available with a pre-order product that only comes out within three months. So we've launched a couple of automations on that side around, you know, we leverage gorgeous as our support desk. So we allow customers to be able to check the status on that order and kind of see where it's at and then we set up some flows that kind of notify them and kind of answer the questions before they have them. Something around, well, I ordered a retail product and there's a pre-order product. Am I going to get them separately or at the same time? So whenever you get your order confirmation, you know it clearly states in there, frequently asked questions, am I getting them at the same time or not? So trying our best to get as much information as possible to the customer and being as responsive as possible through support. I think as long as the expectation is set, that most customers are pretty reasonable in understanding, other than the ones that obviously are trying to let's say abuse a certain policy, I think most people are pretty fair in understanding as long as they know what they're getting into.
1: No, that makes a ton of sense. I think your point on Amazon scaling back, I think that was a that was a low interest rate environment situation where everyone was just kind of burning cash to try and compete for market share and pull forward demand and to your point, it's all kind of correcting itself, obviously. You guys sell to, it's more of a considered purchase. It's highly collectible stuff. It's not impulsive. Someone scrolling on Instagram and decides to invest a bunch of, a couple hundred dollars in Pokemon cards for the first time. Maybe that happens, but it's probably the exception, not the rule. What's top of mind for you right now from like a challenge standpoint that could likely resonate with the people listening? Like what is kind of the number one challenge that you guys are facing right now and how are you thinking about solving
0: it? I think it's just the nature of the world right now. There's a lot of pressure on everyone, whether it's an individual or a business, to continue to be financially solvent. And labor costs are up, carbon tax is up, insurance is up, prices on everything is up. And as a business, the hardest part to balance is making sure that your staff are good, but then your customers are happy and that the pricing remains reasonable. And so I think in some cases, the tighter that people's budgets get, the more financially conscious that they are and so that's I would say the hardest part of being kind of a, an entrepreneur or small business owner in 2023 is like that financial balance and there's just so many macro factors that are like directly affecting our ability to not only like stay alive but also continue to grow and continue to offer you know new opportunities and new product segments and benefits back to the staff and all that I'd say like that financial umbrella that's hanging over everyone's shoulders is affecting every single industry. And the labor market too, right? I agree. And I think obviously you guys, having not having raised
1: a ton of money, I think there's a lot of people that have the struggle, but they have a board full of people as well that are kind of pressuring them to, to do some things. So not, I think that makes a ton of sense. Getting into my last question, as we look to wrap it up, we didn't touch on that you have a pretty impressive extensive background in cybersecurity. How have some of those things and lessons maybe you learned from that industry influenced how you've looked at
0: at hobbies well? I think the e-commerce space, the direct-to-consumer space, is incredibly challenging when it comes to chargebacks. Not a lot of people actually even know what chargebacks are, but the long and short of it is there's a number of different codes when it comes to a charge on your credit card. If you open your credit card statement and there's a charge that you don't recognize, you can call your bank and say, I never ordered this this is fraudulent. And then the bank goes and does the due diligence. And then what happens is they actually pull that money out of the bank account of the merchant that processed the transaction. So as a Shopify merchant or any kind of e-commerce merchant, you're required to not only be a business expert, a finance expert, an HR expert, you're also required to be a technology expert that also understands fraud and risk and cybersecurity. So as a merchant, you get a lot of information or sometimes minimal information when an order is placed and you're expected to make an educated guess on whether or not you should actually ship this order. And so my background in cybersecurity is what we kind of always leverage in terms of understanding the information that's presented to us. So if an order comes through and it says this individual is 200 kilometers away from their billing address and the delivery address doesn't match the billing address and they're leveraging a proxy that is in New York City, but the order is getting shipped to Toronto, and it's getting shipped to a P.O. box, that might mean something to me, but it might not mean something to the next merchant who's just a regular merchant, sells candles online, set up a Shopify store. And so what we've done internally is we have defined playbooks when it comes to identity verification, and verification of delivery address and billing address. So we've got you know, a number of things that we've done internally just to kind of validate that. But it's still a challenge and something that we deal with daily. I'd say the biggest trend that's popping up now is uh, a chargeback for a code called items not as described. There's no explanation behind it. It's just a customer can just say, not as described. And all we have as a business owner as a recourse is, we try to send the information, try to show what was shipped. But just imagine the amount of overhead it takes to document and track a lot of those things. That's a great
1: answer. Edmund, honestly, it was a pleasure chatting with you. I know we crossed paths, whether on LinkedIn or at events, and it was a great chatting with you for the first time. I uh, really appreciate it. I'm sure everyone listening did as well. And thanks and best of luck with Hobbies on the report. Appreciate that. Thank you. The e commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, is brought to you by Noibu. To find out more about Noibu and how we can help you debug your e-commerce site and rocket your revenue, visit www.noibu.com. That's N-O-I-B-U dot And then make sure to search for the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click Subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Noibu, thanks for listening.